Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And Donald Trump has revived the plan to dismantle Obamacare in 2024. We have such a great show for you today. The Financial Times' John Byrne Murdoch gives us a fascinating breakdown about why life expectancy in the United States is plummeting. Then we'll talk to the New York Times' David Leonhardt about his new book, Ours Was the Shining Future, the story of the American dream. But first, we have the host of the enemies list, the one, the only, the Lincoln Projects, Rick Wilson. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Rick Wilson. Good Sunday afternoon for the Monday broadcast to you, Molly Jongfast. Yes. And we are waiting. I feel like we're in this weird holding pattern where we're waiting for the American people to wake up and be like, holy fuck, Donald Trump is going to be the Republican nominee. Discuss. For the 5,375th time to my friends in the world out there who say things like, well, Nikki Haley could still come from behind and beat him. I mean, what is the thinking? It's so wish fulfillment. Let me run some numbers down for people because this is this was my world. Math is a bitch. Math is a cruel, horrible <laughs> bitch who will not be reasoned with. I hate it, man. I, I love I math, it. but she will not be reasoned with. 
She will mm. not be negotiated with. She will not allow for fantasies to replace mathematical rigor. Donald Trump is going to go into Iowa right now. He's under 50%. Yes, but Nikki's at 17. She's got 50 days to close a gap of roughly 30 points. Let's call it in round number theory. And does she do well? Probably. She just probably does much better than people expect. DeSantis is fading. He won't leave the race, but he's fading fast. So that never Trump-ish vote will remain split. Okay. All the others are cat and dog random noise in the system. She goes out of Iowa with a good head of steam, goes to New Hampshire, does pretty well. But Chris Christie's not going to quit, and neither is DeSantis, so they're going to still end up with Trump winning New Hampshire. Okay, so he's won two. Then they're going to go to South Carolina, and Nikki's going to do really well in her home state and still fall short. Then they're going to go to Super Tuesday. Now, just so people understand this, there are two states on Super Tuesday, Texas and California. In both of those states, in Texas, the last time I looked, Donald Trump was leading by about 40% over DeSantis, who was behind him in second. And in California, he was leading DeSantis by about 50 points. So once Super Tuesday happens and these winner-take-all states go and you end up with Texas, California, South Carolina, Iowa, New Hampshire, and a whole bunch of the other cat and dog states on Super Tuesday, and then Donald Trump is going to, at that point, have almost 40% of the votes he needs to take the nomination. Then we go on March 12th to the great state of Florida, where Donald (laughs) Trump is presently leading tiny Ron by 35%. By 35%. Ron DeSantis, his his whole campaign was built around the horseshit predicate. I won Florida by 19 points, so I can't there. No, you can't. He owns the Republican Party, Ronnie. He's going to get spanked. He's going to. Oh, man. Rick Wilson in such peak Rick Wilson fashion. But it's a really good point about how I think this comes back to a fundamental problem Republicans have had this entire time with Trump, which is they truly believe that if they ignore him or if they wish hard enough, the actuarial tables uh-huh. this is a direct quote yep, from The yep, New York yep. Times, right? Remember the unknown Republican who said the actuarial tables can't possibly be wrong for this long, like eventually he's going to be. And it's like the road to the end of American democracy seems paved with Donald Trump will just go away if we close our eyes hard enough. This wish fulfillment that Trump is going to get defeated by a true conservative goes all the way back to 2016 and 2015, where I was the one asshole screaming, no, 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 this isn't going to work. And yet here we are. And they still believe that this goddamn creature with the luck of the devil is going to drop dead of a heart attack. We are not that lucky. We live in the hands of a cruel and capricious God who does not want Trump dead yet for whatever reason. I would also just say, like, what has happened has not been that the Republican Party has come back to sanity. What has happened is that the Republican Party has gotten very Trumpy. And so they've rejected democracy and democratic norms. As anyone who's ever been on any social media platform, you say the word democracy, you'll instantly have 15 hundred Twitter trolls who went, we don't live in a democracy, we live in a republic. Yes, you fucktards. It's a republic based on democratic and constitutional principles. So pardon me for shorthanding it. Next time I'll use simple pictograms so you dumb motherfuckers can understand what I'm trying to communicate. <laughs> Someone's been spending too much time on Twitter. <laughs> no, actually, actually, I've been almost completely off Twitter the last like week, and it's been glorious. I'm on the good place. Yes, you're in threads. But as we're talking about this idea that Republicans can't wish him away, but neither can Democrats, right? 
And now we find ourselves in a situation where I think at some point Republicans are going to wake up to the fact that they could have had Nikki Haley, but they would have had to have originally not allowed Trump to take over the entire Republican Party. And I'm thinking about like the Republican Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, who has that job because Trump deemed him sufficiently loyal because he wrote a brief trying to overturn the 2020 election. So if anything, Trumpism is a contagious illness that is infecting the very few members who are still in office, right? None of these candidates who could win, I say that, recognize that Will Hurd when he was in the race and Asa Hutchison, I guess he's still in the race, and Chris Christie all made (laughs) cases that Trump was bad, wrong, evil, must be destroyed. They were never able to win. But none of the candidates who could win could get their way out of the bear trap clamped around their legs that is Donald Trump's utter control of the Republican Party at every level, top to bottom, stem to stern. And if you are a Republican elected official in this country, there is nothing that frightens you more than the thought of crossing Donald Trump, no matter how bad, wrong and evil you know he is. You don't want to say, uh, you know, Donald was slightly incorrect about claiming that, you know, Hillary Clinton eats live babies. They don't want to say anything to possibly offend him. And without offending him and having a fight with him and having a competition with him, then the message the Republican base voter receives is not, wow, that Ron DeSantis sure is a smart, strong fella. They hear this guy's ready to go wash Donald Trump's car and polish his shoes before the workday starts. It's just a weird blind spot that they recognize the perniciousness of Trump, but they don't recognize that somebody has to be sacrificed. Somebody has to blow themselves up to blow up Trump. And none of them want to do that. There's just a vast gaping lack of political courage. Right. No, I think that's a good point. I think so much about like you have one party, Democratic Party, you may like them, you may not like them, but they believe in democratic principles, right? They believe in a democracy, whereas you have this other party which really believes in Trumpism. So now you have Trump. He is going to be the nominee 100 percent. Who he picks as a vice president, it doesn't even matter, right? Because that person like, you know, look how well that turned out for Mike Pence. Right. I mean, you know, he picks whoever, whoever is least lucky. And then, you know, you will go into a year of like him coming after you. (laughs) And (laughs) speaking of which, he did come after you this weekend, which is pretty interesting. He cannot get the Lincoln Project and me out of his vacuous little orange noggin. Why do you think that is? Because we whipped his ass and we never showed any fear about him. Because the thing he hates and loathes the most, Molly, is anyone who stands up to him and doesn't break. And anyone who doesn't put up with his threats and bullshit intimidation. Even when he sent Bill Barr after the Lincoln Project, our response wasn't like, oh, no, please stop, Donald. We'll do anything you want. It was like, go fuck yourself. Come on over. Try me again, bitch. And look, he understands also that at a sort of intuitive level, the kind of direct in your face campaigning that we did against him is something that had benefit. It worked. It showed Democrats how to toughen up. And he intuitively gets that that's a bad outcome for him. Right. Exactly. So tell me what you think it looks like now. We have Republicans nominating Trump. We have Democrats. A lot of stuff going on. This bad Senate map. We have a House that has now kicked the can. Mike Johnson has a CR that he's going to have to figure out starting in January. It's tiered, so people are a little confused about it. But ultimately, 
he did a clean CR. It's a continuing resolution which funds the government for another month. But eventually, Mike Johnson is going to have a come to Jesus moment, right, where he's going to have to do government. And he's part of a party that no longer believes in, quote unquote, doing government, right? It's not just that. It is that they believe that the perverse incentive structure out there of I'm going to get a primary from my right if I vote for a CR is out there with enough Republican members because, again, the dog caught the car. Two years ago, they were like, hey, district us into the most right wing MAGA crazy districts in the world. Right. Why not? And why not? And their and their prayers were answered. What's the worst that could happen? What's the worst that could happen? Their prayers were answered. Oh, that. And so now they exist in a world where if Matt Gates or, or Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert or somebody wakes up pissed off at them and starts talking about them on Fox, that they're a libtard cuck shill. Right. Or right side broadcasting. Right. Or Pizza Jack or any of the other crazies. Human events. Yeah. yeah. Human events. <laughs> Human events. Oh, my God. But I mean, you could just get on there and have some vape pen and watch Beetlejuice and talk about how you don't like this person. They're insufficiently uh, MAGA and they can be primaried, right? Well, it's a lot like China during the Mao era. <laughs> you could be denounced at any time by anybody. And suddenly you went from being like a senior member of the People's Liberation Army to like having to dig potatoes in some northwest frontier province. <laughs> If you were lucky, if you were lucky, we're just in a spot where the realization that Trump runs the Republican Party, it's even problematic for some otherwise very smart reporters to process that this horse race they desperately want isn't real. So let's talk about that for a minute. There is no primary, right? You have the incumbent, Joe Biden, who is old. Okay, we're going to give you that. He's old. He's 81. He's old. I noticed Joe Biden was old. I noticed that. He's spry. He rides a bike, but he is old. Sure. He's been to like 15 war zones, but okay, he's old. Versus the guy with the 91 criminal indictments. All right, let's talk about this a second. Straight News, again, is going to have an opportunity to cover Donald Trump. What is going to happen besides the heat death of the universe go? What should the mainstream media do? We're on the opinion side, so we're lucky we can just say our opinions. I wish they would adopt the Jay Rosen rule. Don't cover the odds, cover the stakes. And unfortunately, the horse race coverage, the breathless horse race coverage, distracts from the existential danger that a second Trump term poses. And it normalizes him, right? Yes, it gives it gives people a sense of like, well, and Molly, to this point, I actually had a serious reporter last week say to me, well, I think all of this Project 2025 stuff is a little overblown because there's no way the lawyers would let, I'm like, that's not the point. They're not going to have the lawyers you think they're going to have. And also Project 2025 is the Heritage Foundation's foray into fascism, where they replace all of the normal bureaucrats with far right fascist bureaucrats. Don't forget, the Heritage Foundation is the soft face of this plan. They're the like gentry Republican version of this plan. And if you think that having people like Stephen Miller and Steve Bannon and all these crazy and Kevin Slack, the Red Caesar guy and all these cuckoos back in charge is going to be constrained next time by grownups or the courts or anybody else, they will ignore the law and the courts. You know, our friend George Conway started a new group this week where they're pointing out to Republican lawyers, hey, you, you know, you swore an oath to the Constitution to the rule of law not to Trump. 
but there will be enough Republican lawyers who don't give a shit. You're going to have Pizza Jack as the secretary of the army, let's yeah. be honest. Like, you're going to long for the days when you had Jared as secretary of everything. And you will find very quickly that even the Republicans in the U.S. Senate who do not like Trump, and there are still in the Republican caucus. A few. Mitt will be gone. No, Mitt will be gone. There are still a dozen who are uncomfortable, four or five who are real, like in opposition to Trump. Even those people, even Sue Collins, who believes that Trump has learned his lesson, they will vote for all these crazy appointees. They will vote for Pizza Jack. They will vote for Seb Gorka to be the secretary of defense or whatever. They're going to name oh, the yeah. most the insane best. lunatics, the dragon of Budapest, Seb Gorka. <laughs> Seb Gorka will be the person who puts the order in to send us to Gitmo. Oh, no. Yeah, actually, I think Seb will end up being, and I'm not kidding you, national security advisor. Yeah. No, no. Why not? What's the bar here? They're going to make Cash and Kiri Patel the Secretary <laughs> of Defense. And Rich Grinnell's <laughs> going to go ahead, you know, the, the intelligence community again. That's great news. Fuck yeah, great news. It's going to be amazing. amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't worry. It's just uh, the horse race is what really matters. And so right. all the grownups will be back. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a good point. And I think it's worth remembering just that the stakes here are humongous. I mean, they're basically humongous. this could be the last. I want to expand this for a minute, which is even if, and again, we don't know what's going to happen. We're still a year out. I can't believe we're going to have another fucking year of this. I mean, I'm exhausted just thinking about it. But even despite that, there still is a Republican Party that does not really believe in any of these principles anymore of democracy. No, no. We live in a post-ideological Republican Party. They do not believe, they are what I call, the old trope was limited government conservatives. They are unlimited government conservatives. They want power and control at every level. And that includes from what the law means in terms of, it means what the president says it means, to who can be an American, to who can come to America to try to build a better life, to whether there's any degree of autonomy or individual liberty when it comes to women. All these things are going to add up in a fundamental way where if he becomes president, the transition time between him swearing that oath on the Bible as it catches fire and (laughs) the outright (laughs) deployment and use and abuse of military power in this country will be hours, not days, days, not weeks, weeks, not months. Rick Wilson. A ray of sunshine, as always. <laughs> I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. And recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry. Back to Iguodala. Up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. 
Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry, my light, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great! More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over fifteen thousand jokes to over three million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jon Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Byrne Murdoch is a columnist and chief data reporter at the Financial Times. Welcome to Fast Politics, John. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Describe yourself so that I don't get it wrong. So I'm the chief data reporter at the FT, which basically means I'm trying to do journalism using statistics, using data, using charts. So that means both finding stories in data sets or using things like FOIA requests, and, and then also using graphs and maps and stuff to actually get those stories, get that journalism out to people as well. And you're a senior fellow at the London School of Economics. So you are, as we say on this side of the pond, no slouch. Ah, well, you know, some of those titles come with more responsibility than others. But that, that just means folks at the LSE give, give me support on some of the pieces I'm working on. I decided to write to you because you had an incredible piece, which was something that I had a sense that this was happening, but I don't think I quite understood it. So American life expectancy is having the worst crisis of my lifetime. So I'm hoping you can talk to me a little bit about this research you did. Yeah, sure. So this was prompted by just the fact that, as I think most of your listeners will know, um, during COVID, life expectancy around the world dropped. 
pretty much everywhere because yeah. simply more people were dying as a direct result of the, the virus. But the really interesting thing that I saw was um, after the initial sort of brunt of the virus, after 2020, by the time vaccines were online and that kind of thing, life expectancy broadly recovered in most countries in the world. So we saw this sudden dip and then a, a, a fairly smooth rebound back to roughly where, where it would have been. However, there was one exception, which was in the US, where life expectancy dipped by about two years in 2020, but then dipped by another year or so in 2021. And that just got me thinking, like, what's happening here? Why is it that in the rest of the world we saw this blip, but in the US things have, have only continued getting even, even worse? And also, you know, what can we learn by making more direct comparisons between what we see in the US and what we see elsewhere. My entry point in that as a as a Brit was to think, okay, like, let's take England and the US. So you've got two relatively wealthy countries in the West um, with fairly similar demographics, fairly similar in many ways. And yet people in, people in England, people in Britain live um, a couple of years longer than people in the US. The central premise of this piece is why are Americans dying so young? Continue. Yeah, well, it, it, exactly that. But as, as you say, it is completely insane because I've read and you would have read and, and probably all sorts of people have read and heard over the last couple of years so many stories about how much richer Americans are now than people in Britain or, or people in, right. in most parts of the... We have lower um, inflation, much lower inflation because we didn't sanction ourselves with Brexit. Continue. Well, indeed, yeah, there, there are all sorts of things going on here, but... There's, there's no question that the average American is now substantially richer than the average Brit by somewhere between about 30 and even 60%, depending on exactly what number you use. And so that makes this even more striking because you've got this very large gap in life expectancy between the two countries, despite the fact that Americans, in theory, have considerably higher living standards. Like it's people in England live five years longer than people in America on average despite Americans earning much more. Insane. So that in itself is startling. But when you when you look at this across the income distribution is where it gets really interesting. So this is where if you imagine the richest, most high earning people on the right and the poorest, most low earning people on the left, and look at what life expectancy is across that distribution. And what you see is if you're a really well-off person in America, you live about as long as a really well-off person in the UK. So average life expectancy there is maybe around 85 years. But at the bottom, the people who are right at the bottom of British society, who are really, really struggling, all sorts of things in their lives have gone wrong, they're still living on average 76 years. Whereas the people right at the bottom of the US society are living less than 70 years. So it's, it's really at the bottom end of things among people who've come across a lot of disadvantage, that the US fares exceptionally poorly. And this was, I think, actually the statistic that first got me interested in, in doing this piece was I was looking at some data on what's called health-adjusted life expectancy. So this is not just how long you're going to live, but how long people are expected to live in good health. So when they're still able to be up and about and physically active and mentally sharp. And what that shows is the average person in America is expected to get around 65 years of good health like that. And that figure in the UK, 65 years, is the figure for the lowest healthy life expectancy in the entire country. So there's a, a seaside town, a coastal town in the UK called Blackpool, which is kind of notorious for having a lot of um, drug problems and antidepressants, homelessness, 
it's the sort of poster child for a struggling part of this country. And the average person who's born in that part of England lives, lives as long and healthy a life as the average American. Does some of this have to do with the fact that the British have healthcare? It's, it's a really interesting one, right? Because that, I think, is certainly what a lot of people would assume is going on here, right? Um, in the UK, right. we have the National Health Service, which is free at the point of use, so you're never hit with a bill, you're never having to think, you know, am I going to be able to afford this? You, if, you, if you've got a health issue, it gets taken care of. In the US, obviously, that, that's true for a lot of people who've got health insurance, perhaps with their employer, or, or, or even if they're, they're paying for it directly. But of course, there is a minority of Americans who don't have health insurance, don't have health cover, and therefore are worried about, am I going to be able to afford this treatment? And so I think the default position a lot of people come into this with is like, well, that must explain it. Right. And I'm, I don't want to say, I'm not going to say that that isn't a factor at all, but when you start looking at the reasons for this gap in life expectancy, when you start looking at what people are dying from, it starts to become clear that, that, that the health insurance factor can only explain a small part of it. Ooh, so interesting. So tell me more. What we can do is we can look at, there's a couple of things, right? So one is we can look at the age at which people die and, and the rate at which people die at different ages in various countries. So if you take not just England, not just the UK, but a whole load of wealthy countries, so Australia, Canada, France, Germany, Japan, Netherlands, throw a load of them in here and we look at what is the chance of someone dying in any given year from the age of zero from a newborn all the way up to 100 years old? And what you see is in all of those other developed countries, the risk of death at any age is pretty similar in whatever country you're in. So your chance of dying at age 20 years old is about 0.05%. So that's saying about, let me think, so 1% will be you've got one in 100 chance. So this is about you've got about a one in 2,000 chance of dying age 20 years old in most developed countries. Whereas in the US, it's four times higher than that. Oh, so this is really interesting. So what you're saying is if you're a 20-year-old in Britain and a 20-year-old in America, the 20-year-old in America is four times more likely to die. Exactly. And, and the reason I bring that up in answer to your previous question about the impact of the different healthcare systems is is when you think about what someone who's 20 years old is dying of, someone in their late teens, 20s to early 30s is what we're talking about. We're not really talking here, and, and we'll come onto this in more detail in a minute with, with causes of death, but generally these are not people who sort of got a chronic condition that requires expensive right. healthcare treatment. These are not people who've got, uh, who are dying from, say, cancer or, or, or heart disease. These are people who by and large, in America, are dying from gunshot wounds and opioids and, to a smaller extent, road accidents and deaths involving vehicles. And it's not, of course, that it's not that the healthcare system is completely irrelevant to these, but it's that if someone dies from a gunshot wound, chances are whether or not you've got health insurance wouldn't have made a huge impact in that situation. So I think when people think about life expectancy, because the average life expectancy is always somewhere in the 70s or 80s, people imagine that trends in life expectancy and differences in life expectancy between countries are driven by what's happening to people aged in their late 60s and 70s. When in reality, the impact of, of the very, very large numbers of people dying at young ages, which is what we see in America, people in their 20s and 30s, the impact of that is larger than the impact of lots of people dying very slightly earlier in their older ages. 
So the assumption is always to think, oh, people in the US are dying in their 70s instead of 80s. This must be because older people have less access to healthcare. But it's actually the vast quantities of people in their late teens, 20s, 30s, even early 40s who die in America from things that people simply don't die, die from in these other countries. This is insanity. So it's the guns. I mean, really, if you were to change one element, the life expectancy in America is falling because of guns. Well, so it's interesting you say that because this again is, I think, what, you know, once we, once we say, all right, it's not just about healthcare, it's not just about older ages. Everyone goes to the guns. Everyone thinks, okay, <laughs> if we know one thing about America, it's that there are a lot of guns and a lot of people, unfortunately, lose their lives as a result of that. But the really striking thing that I think People, so people are definitely aware of this, this next thing I'm going to talk about. I don't think people realize the scale of it, which is the opioid crisis, fentanyl, and this kind of stuff. So for I think everyone, both in America and outside America, knows that America has a lot of gun. And uh, you know, it's, it's a very, very large number, and it's far bigger than what we see in other developed countries. But to the extent that that's true, it's twice as true for opioids. The death rate, once you adjust for the ages that people die from guns and die from opioids, the death rate in America from opioids is twice as high as it is from guns. And other countries just don't have this opioid problem. Of course, you know, people do die from, unfortunately, from drug overdoses in various parts of the world. Within the UK, Scotland has a bit of a problem. But nothing is anywhere near the scale of the US. And in the US, it's, it's only been in the last few years where... This, where this is really, really, really taken off. So the guns thing has been a problem in the US for decades. The opioids thing has, has become this massive problem recently. And that is actually why in the US we didn't see life expectancy rebound back up after COVID. It's because we're not seeing all these COVID deaths anymore, but the sheer number of people dying from drugs, uh, drug overdoses in the US has shot up so quickly that it's more than made up for the disappearance of COVID. Wow. I'm sober since I was 19 years old. So this for me as someone who had drug overdoses myself and also had many friends die of drug overdoses, this is just an incredible, you know, to hear something like this from someone on the data side is really quite shocking. And also I wish I were more surprised by it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. And and this is this is the thing. It's it's a tragic, tragic thing. It's been sort of slowly building up, and you know we've been getting more news stories about this in the last three, four years. People are definitely aware of it, but I still think that the sheer scale of what we're seeing of what we're seeing here is is beyond what people realise. Because again, you know, we're talking about a something that I think people think of as this is a thing that happens to other people, right? It's Right. Uh, you know, you, you hear about this, but you don't necessarily see it. But it's happening on such a scale that it is literally pulling down life expectancy the entirety of the US. And, and you know, it's obviously easy to say, again, that, well, sure, but it's still okay if you're rich. But A, you know, no. that, exactly. That's, that's a remarkable lack of, of empathy for one's <laughs> um, actions. Yes. But it's also, this, this does, you know, affect people further up the, the income distribution as well. Things can go well for people a few wrong turns in life and you're another st statistic. Well, I think also, I mean, first of all, that's no way to go through life, not giving a shit about people who don't have money. And then the other thing is that I think is so interesting. I want you to go back to that, what you said that, that people who do drugs, that they're more likely to die of an overdose in the United States, right? 
Yeah, well, well, that's that's fentanyl, right? So there are all sorts of opioids that get around um, various countries in the world. As, as I mentioned, Scotland and UK has a smaller problem, but it does have an issue with these street sort of street opioids and in the UK. But nothing as lethal as fentanyl is circulating pretty much anywhere else. The sort of the emergence of fentanyl into the scene has really driven what was already this sort of slow rumbling problem in the US and turned it into this just absolutely enormous spike, which just takes lives away like nothing else. Fentanyl is actually really a problem. Absolutely. It's, it's an enormous problem. I, I'm sure some of your listeners will have been aware of um, President Xi from China being over in San Francisco recently to talk to Biden, among others. And, and one of the points of discussion was fentanyl. And a lot of it tends to be manufactured and imported from, well, not so much imported, but it, it gets into the country from China. And it's, it is a massive, massive issue. You know, in, in 2021, 70,000 people in the US died from fentanyl alone. And, and the numbers only increased since then, I believe. And, and this was um, you know, not including other opioids, but that is still more than the total number of people who died from guns, either homicide or suicide. So it's Jesus. an absolutely enormous issue. And in, as recently as 2013, about 2,000 people were died from fentanyl. So you've gone from 2,000 to more than 70,000 in the space of less than 10 years. It's just, it's been that sudden. And I think people don't realize that we completely changed from this sort of slow rumbling opioid crisis, which started with prescription opioids, to something now, which is just on a completely different scale. Because we're almost out of time. I want you to go over the top lines in this story again. Poor Americans are living how many years shorter? So poor Americans live about 15 years shorter than the richest Americans. But the, the point shit. is that- Every country has a bit of a gap like that. Like in the right. UK, it's maybe a nine-year gap, and that's certainly normal for wealthy countries. But in the US, it's a 15-year gap, and that is not because both ends are stretched out, as it were. It's specifically because people at the bottom end in America live much more lethal lives. Yeah, the, the, basically, the way I think about it is the experience of being poor in America is much more deadly. Like disadvantage in America is much more lethal than disadvantage in other parts of the world. Such an insane way to run a country. And the top lines I'm taking away here are that it's not necessarily healthcare. I wonder if you could just, for my own edification, I have two questions. One is maternal fetal mortality. If you had some take on that, that you could fold into the data. And the other is racism in medicine. I know that African-Americans get much less good medical care in this country. And I'm just wondering if you could speak to either or either or both. Sure. So, so maternal mortality is, is definitely a point worth mentioning here, and so I'm glad you did. And that is still a figure where, number one, the US does worse than pretty much all of its peer countries, all other developed countries. But also that's especially true among Black women, among African American women. Yeah. And again, most countries do see something slightly similar in terms of Black women in the UK, for example, also fare worse than white women in the UK. But the rate of maternal deaths among black women in America is is far, 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 far higher than, than what we see even for black women in any other parts of the world. So there definitely is a factor there. Sorry, that, that definitely is a factor. And racism in medicine, again, yeah, you know, I've read some powerful stories about about what that looks like. And and certainly I think especially for, for black women, that does seem to be a consistent theme. So it's uh, yeah, I'm I'm absolutely not sort of dismissing the the roles of those things in play. And and you know, the, the lack of access to healthcare in America is absolutely an issue as well. But I think when you look at the data on this, it really is 
guns and particularly drugs, which account for the vast majority of what we're talking about. Yeah. So interesting. Thank you so much for coming. I hope you'll come back. Thanks for having me. And yeah, I'd love to. David Leonhard is a senior writer at The New York Times and author of Ours Was the Shining Future, the story of the American dream. Welcome to Fast Politics, David. It is great to be back, Molly. Yes, welcome back. So I want to talk about this book, Ours Was the Shining Future. I want you to sort of, you know, I think of you as someone who writes more than pretty much anyone else because you write this daily newsletter and I know you don't do it every day, but you do it a lot of days. And it is considered to be, at least by the people at the Times, their sort of digital front page. How did you find time to do this? (laughs) First of all, I missed a lot of deadlines. I spent a long time writing the book and I loved doing it. I I did a lot of historical research. I mean, it's really a book of stories and a book of history of how the American economy has ended up where it is. But so part of the answer is that I spent years writing it. And then part of the answer is that it overlaps a lot with my job, which is I spent a lot of time in my job writing about the American economy and writing about the American political system. And this is very much a book about both. And then weirdly, COVID helped because Mm. since the world slowed down so much during the miseries of COVID and, and people stopped commuting I basically found that I had a couple hours every morning when I wasn't commuting. And um, I, at first at home, and then uh, when it was allowed, I had a coffee shop sitting outside when you couldn't sit inside and then sitting inside when you could. I ended up doing a lot of writing of the book uh, during the the long period of time when, when we really didn't do that much during COVID. And then finally, I took a four-month leave and really did the final sprint of, of editing the book during that. So, you know, we have a lot of people on this podcast who talk about the economy and who talk about, you know, this discrepancy between the way the economy is doing and the way people feel. Can you pinpoint this from your book? So, I, I think they're basically the idea is the, the economy's metrics, or at least many of them, GDP, the unemployment rate, look good. And Americans are really grouchy about the economy. I assume that's the contradiction you're talking about. And I think there are some important short-term reasons for that that much of the discussion about this revolve around. And I'd spend time talking about that as well. A lot of it involves inflation. But my focus in the book is the long term. And I think that doesn't get enough attention. So yes, it's the case that people are grouchier now than GDP and unemployment suggest they should be because prices have arisen so much and interest rates have risen. That's absolutely true. But I also think it's true that the inflation is like the match, but the kindling is the fact that the economy has delivered disappointing results in the way that actually affect people's lives for so long that people that that sort of just lit this fire of dissatisfaction. And I think that does not get enough attention. So it comes for the bottom 90% of the population have grown much more slowly than economic growth. Wealth has grown really slowly. You will sometimes hear economists fighting about this. They'll say, well, but if you do this inflation, inflation adjustment differently, actually, the last few decades have been better than all these people say. I think that's wrong on the merits, but it's also wrong when you look at any other measure. I mean, look at various measures of, of social well-being, like people's health. Look at what Americans say about the economy, not just now, 
But over the last 20 years, people are usually grouchy about it. And then to me, the real statistic that just ends this debate about whether the American economy is actually healthy in a long-term way is the following. I think life expectancy is the most basic measure of how well a society is serving its citizens. And in 1980, the United States had a typical life expectancy for a rich country, similar to Europe. And for about 15 years now, we've had the single worst life expectancy of any rich country, worse than every country in Western, Western Europe, worse than Canada, worse than Japan. And it's not even that close. This is the first chart in my book. I'm cavelling because today we had Jonathan Byrne Murdoch from FT on to talk about the life expectancy problem. So anyway, go on, go on. No, he's great. Um, he does yeah. fantastic charts on social media and, and fantastic work overall. It's a shocking chart. 15 years, right? Well, so there are two things, right? There's the the gap between the U.S. and other countries, and then you look within the U.S., the reason why our life expectancy data is so bad is that the life expectancy for people who don't have a four-year college degree has just absolutely stagnated. It was growing really slowly, and then it even started falling a little bit before COVID, and then it plummeted during COVID. But this isn't just only a COVID story. These trends predate COVID in a real large variety of ways. We live in a society with massive and massively higher inequality than we used to have. And that has affected people's health and their happiness and how long they live. And I think those of us who are lucky enough to be on the other side of that divide, I think it's really important that we spend more time thinking about how did we end up with this society that is so fundamentally sick for so many of our fellow citizens. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. And a lot of this life expectancy stuff was made significantly worse by COVID and then following in short order deaths of despair, right? So some of this should be able to be explained at least on a macro level in America by this post-pandemic period of insanity. In an absolute sense, that's right. But I think the relative is really important. COVID also hit France and England and Canada. And it also did bad things to life expectancy in all of those countries as well. And when you look at it in a relative basis, COVID is not the most important part of the story here. Because no. all those countries have gone down. And on a relative basis, you just really see right around 1980, their lines keep going up at a different, I don't mean exactly 1980, at some point in the 1980s, their lines continue to go up at a relatively healthy rate and ours doesn't. And there seems to be something in particular that the United States is doing, uh, and it's more than one thing, that makes us particularly poor at keeping alive our citizens, particularly our working class citizens. And that is a story that is much older than COVID. It's older than deaths of despair, although they're important. It's a decades-long story. It almost perfectly matches, uh, timing-wise, the trends in economic inequality. So talk to me about this sort of political re-alignments uh, yeah. in the 60s and explain that to me a little bit and how that factors into your thesis. I have to say, so when I would disappear into archives of the Library of Congress or the Truman Presidential Library or the Minneapolis Historical Society or you name it, I went into a lot of these. I read a ton of old newspapers. One of the things that I was really struck by was the echoes of our current political debates 
that existed in the 60s. Or I guess we're echoing the 60s, not vice versa. And what you really see start to happen in the early 60s is you see a whole bunch of people on the left. The most influential figure in many ways was C. Wright Mills, this Columbia University sociologist. He's one of the figures in my book. I'm sure many people have heard his name. He wrote a couple of famous books. But he's this amazing character. He was a Texan who was a professor at Columbia University, and he rode a motorcycle down the Hudson River Valley to get to work at Columbia. And he loved picking fights with people. And he was a man of the left. And he said, look, the way to make change in this country is to do it through intellectuals. It's this notion that the way to create political change through the working class, which lots, which the left had long valorized, um, Marxists had valorized it, labor unions had valorized it. C. Wright Mill said, no, 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 that's wrong. The way to create change is through intellectuals, and through college students and college professors. And while he and, and his fellow leftists at the time had some really important and valid criticisms of the old left. They were way too forgiving of Stalin. They had definite problems. <laughs> this hits a little close to home because my grandfather got the Stalin Peace Prize. Wow. I didn't yeah. know that. Yes. <laughs> Howard Fast, recipient of the Stalin Peace Prize. Wow. My father found it in a box and dropped it. He was completely freaked out by the experience. Yeah. Anyway, yes. I'm sure. Anyway, so there were really good critiques of the old left that C. Wright Mills and others had. But the notion that, that the way you create a mass progressive movement is through intellectuals was just fundamentally flawed. The numbers don't work. You can't create a mass movement just involving intellectuals unless you win over a lot of people. And what happened in the 60s, and it's a long, complicated story, I'm not saying this all dates to the 60s by any means, is that increasingly the left in both this country and in much of the West became a movement that was a movement of and by and for more highly educated progressives. And that created this big problem because the political right in our country has adopted this economic theory that has basically failed, right? The idea that if we just get government out of the way, everything will be great for everyone, which is what Milton Friedman and Ronald Reagan promised. And that's failed. I mean, the income, there's income stagnation, the life expectancy stagnation, the fact that people are so unhappy. A lot of that stems from this neoliberal economic revolution since the 1980s. And the left has struggled to win over people from blue-collar backgrounds of all races, has struggled to win them over because so much of the left is much more socially liberal and much more upscale than most American voters are. And that's a story that really begins in the 60s and that we've seen accelerate recently. That helps explain why. You ask yourself, how is it possibly that the Democratic Party could have lost support over the last five years among Latino and Asian American and even black voters in the age of Donald Trump? How could that possibly be? And part of the answer is that the political left in our country is too geared toward the views of higher earning college graduates. And just to be glib about it, what I would say is if the Democratic Party spent less time listening to the views of white people with graduate degrees, which describes many of the people who staff important progressive institutions, and more time listening to the views of Americans of color who don't have a four-year degree, the party would become more moderate and probably more successful. This is a thesis that a lot of people have, but I disagree with it 
for a bunch of different reasons. But one of the reasons why I wonder, it's definitely a more nuanced conversation and I want to keep talking about the book, but it's certainly a thing a lot of people think is right. But I'm just curious, when you look at the sort of Republicans' complete failure to, you know, I mean, they sort of had one idea, which was trickle-down economics, yep. right? Do you think there's ever a moment, I mean, especially now when the when the Republican Party has turned so populist, when they start to develop other economic ideas besides less taxes for the rich? Well, you see, I don't want to exaggerate how much <laughs> But you see right. little bits of it, right? I mean, I was—I have been genuinely surprised by how much bipartisan legislation Joe Biden has been able to sign. And I just thought the Republican Party was too obstructionist for them to play. Yeah, me too. And look, some of that is we should just credit Joe Biden and his aides. They managed that legislation really well. And Barack Obama was a fantastically successful president in a bunch of ways, like he passed the health reform that no other president had been able to pass. But Obama didn't really succeed at, at winning over Republicans to big, ambitious bills for, I think, a whole bunch of reasons. Bill Clinton didn't succeed either. And Joe Biden has succeeded where uh, Obama and Clinton struggled a little bit more. And I do think that Biden deserves some personal credit for that. But it's not just personality. And I think on the infrastructure bill and the semiconductor bill, you do see both which got some Republican votes. You do see some Republicans basically saying, wait a second, some of this Reaganism stuff doesn't actually work and we need the government to, to do some things. Some of it's about competition with China. So you see it there. You see it with found Republican skepticism on a bunch of trade. You see it, this hasn't led to any legislation, so I don't want to exaggerate it. But, you know, Marco Rubio signed a public letter about how labor unions are important. So there are little signs, um, you know, Josh Hawley talks about how bad Silicon Valley is because it's so big. Now, he does it with a conservative bent, but that's sort of the point, right? Josh Hawley is a liberal. The point is you do start to see some ways in which parts of the Republican Party are questioning trickle-down economics. But I don't want to exaggerate it. Donald Trump's only significant bill he signed was a huge tax cut, mostly for the rich. The Supreme Court is still very much this trickle-down Reaganist philosophy. So you see little signs, but not more than little signs. It's such an interesting point. So who are the sort of, if you were, you've written this whole book about the history of it, you know, you have real insights into what the American economy looks like and probably what it needs to look like. What are the sort of tools? Like, it does seem to me like the Biden administration and again, this is really not, you know, this is one of the things I know the least about, but it does seem from like talking to Paul Krugman and people like that. And, you know, we have Justin Wolfers on a lot that this administration has worked really hard to try to think creatively to solve some financial problems. And even I'm thinking about like some of the problems with antitrust too, right, which has become a huge problem. But are there sort of kind of magic bullets out there that people aren't using? Do you see a sort of anything that you think historically people have not used that they should be? Yeah. So I agree with you. The administration is trying to do a bunch of interesting and important things. But there is a very beginning. The revolution in antitrust that Robert Bork oversaw, Bork has become famous for being a failed Supreme Court justice who was super conservative on all kinds of things. But actually, his biggest intellectual contribution, as it were, was getting people comfortable with the idea of defanging antitrust policy. 
It took him decades to persuade people to do that. And it's going to take decades if kind of the new trust busters like Tim Wu and Lena Khan can persuade the country to go back. It's going to take a lot of intellectual work defining what is too big. They've started, but really only just started. So I would say the Biden folks have done a bunch bunch of interesting things. If I were to highlight maybe one thing, it's not a magic bullet, but I think it's really important. I think as a country, and I think the political left too, has really underemphasized the importance of organized labor. And we start to see some real new recognition of that now. And we've had some big wins for the actors and writers and auto workers unions. Yeah, that's right. It's been an incredible time for labor. But there's a big but which is it is still phenomenally difficult for people who are not already in unions to organize. One of the central characters in my book is one of these people who I think most Americans and I would guess most of your listeners have heard his name and could give you a sentence or two on him, but don't actually know his story. A. Philip Randolph, who organizes the first important union of black Americans in the country. It's the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. The name of the union was sexist. It also included maids on these Pullman trains, which were fancy trains that wealthy people took. And Randolph spent 12 years trying to organize this union in the 1920s and 30s, and he lost and lost and lost. He just kept losing. At one point, the union's furniture was thrown out on the street in Harlem because they couldn't afford to make their payments. And he signed workers up, but the company refused to negotiate. And it really is the same tactics that we see today at companies like Starbucks, in which people say, we're doing a union, and then the company just kind of ignores them or figures out excuses to fire the people or give them bad shifts. And the only, well, not the only reason, the first thing you needed was Randolph organizing this incredible group, this incredible union. And then the second thing you needed was changes to federal government policy that forced companies to actually recognize and negotiate with the union when most workers wanted to join it. And only in 1937, when that change in government policy happened, did the Pullman Company negotiate with Randolph and his union. And it led to this incredible victory, decline in hours, increase in wages. And it also became really the building blocks of the civil rights revolution and the civil rights movement in the country. Randolph was the organizer of the march that scared FDR so much, he agreed to integrate wartime factories to get the march canceled in 1941. It was called the March on Washington. And 22 years later, in 1963, when they held the actual March on Washington, they were just redoing the Randolph's original idea. And so it's just an amazing bit of history with a showdown between FDR and Randolph and all this incredible stuff. But to me, the lesson for today is, yes, the auto workers and Hollywood unions have won some big victories, but we're not going to see fundamental change with this until we have a change in the law that makes it possible for Amazon workers and Starbucks workers and a lot of other workers who aren't unionized today to be able to organize. And Joe Biden said he was in favor of that. I don't doubt he was, but he didn't have the support in Congress to get it passed. And this is an issue, labor law reform, that whenever a Democratic president comes in, they say they're in favor of, but it doesn't quite rise up the priority list the way healthcare reform or climate change or something else does. And I think the only way we're going to see real change in, in the percentage of Americans belonging to labor unions, which will help people earn better wages, which will help the progressive political movement in this country, is if there is reform of the law. So companies can't just crush unions the way they so often do now. Thank you so much. And now your moment of fuckery. All right, Rick Wilson, we have to do a thing that you and I do once a week. That thing we do. That thing we do. It is a moment of fuckery. My moment 
of fuckery this week comes uh, via Elon Musk, who sits on a uh, pile of government contracts. Have you heard of him? He sits on a throne of lies and smells like beef and cheese. <laughs> he also uh, controls, like, I don't know, a large percentage of the satellites. Yes, he actually controls 50% of the communication satellites in orbit around the Earth today. What could go wrong? <laughs> Nothing at all. He sort of backed himself into a corner. He continues to tweet at and interact with largely the most far-right people on what's left of his burning hunk of social media. He's my moment of fuckery because I am just watching this go up in flames more and more, and he is uh, become more and more right-wing and unhinged and interacting with the Charlie Kirks and all of it, and he has all of this control over the satellites and Starlink, and he's made billions of dollars on government subsidies, and for that, he is my moment of fuckery. That's a great moment of fuckery, I gotta be honest, because... It's a huge moment. It's like the last year. Yeah, and, and look, I've said this before, I think what he that some of the things that SpaceX does are tremendously important and impressive. Just so people remember this, Elon Musk does not build rockets. He's not a rocket engineer. He's not a car engineer. He's a guy who's got a pile of PayPal money that he got in the 90s, and he's leveraged it over and over again to buy these big companies. And now he's become the greatest troll in the world. <laughs> but to move on from... Yeah, who is your moment of fuckery? More you know, uh, my moment of fuckery, I, I got to go back to the classics this week. I got to go back to Donald Trump once again, because on Thanksgiving Day, Trump continues to post on his dollar store, janky, low-end Kmart social media platform, Truth Social. And on Thanksgiving Day, he tweeted out probably the most deranged and insane threats that you could imagine. And I, I have to say, there are two moments of fuckery here. One is that Trump keeps doing this, threatening the judges in the cases that he's under investigation in, threatening the legal system. And there are the people who won't fucking do anything about it. At this point, a normal person who was threatening a judge in a case would be in jail. At this point, if John Smith had been talking about Judge Erdogan and his clerk and his people were posting their home addresses and they were getting rolling waves of death threats, the person who was causing that would be in jail. And Trump isn't. Yeah. He would go to jail for contempt. And he's not. So, you know, Trump keeps pushing the legal system further and further, but the legal system keeps not doing anything about it. And that's a very dangerous precedent. It's a very, very dangerous I'll precedent. Say. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. 
I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.